Field Harrington is an interdisciplinary artist. From his artist biography, his practice and work revisits the history of Western empiricism and scientific systems, addressing legacies of violence and enmeshments of science, racism, and ideology. Fields Harrington lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. He recently completed the Whitney Independent Studio Program, 2019 to 2020, and received a MFA from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and a BFA from the University of Northern Texas in Denton. Selected group exhibitions include Analogous to Our Own at the Icebox Project Space in Philadelphia, Weak Link at the Automat Gallery, Philadelphia, Sufficiently Charged at UPenn, and Seafood Stew at Y2K Group inaugural pop-up in Maspeth, New York in 2018. Fields will showcase an upcoming project for Gondola Wish, an artist-run platform for remote viewing art online with Y2K Group. The following was recorded on two separate days in June 2020. Enjoy! It's good to hear you! Yeah, it's good to hear you too. Um, I'm with Luca, so, so that's why I was like, see if he would fall asleep, but he's not. He's not mm-hmm. going to. It's okay. He can be part of our conversation. <laughs> if you're okay with that. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, it should be fine. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. He's like kind of, I think when I'm talking, he's, can you hear me though? Yeah, I can yeah. hear you. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, cool. Sounds good. How's Luca? He's, he's okay. I think he's like hot. Oh, that's what... yeah. Yeah, it got, so it's like... so warm now. I know. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know that you're super busy. Um, and um, yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for um, asking me to do this. Yeah, yeah. This is something that we like, you know, want to do regularly. Just like, you know, give artists, you know, time to like really speak about their work and, and speak about their life if, if they they choose to and um really get to know them we kind of want listeners to get to know them as well because yes you know you're on instagram and you you see images of like artwork and you see and if you follow the person you get to know a little bit about them but even then i feel like they're still kind of like a shield so i think it'd be great to really like um you know just get to know get to know you better yeah that sounds that sounds great i'm I'm so glad that y'all are making this series it's really nice to keep the momentum going for you know y2k oh thank you oh thanks yeah we're just kind of i guess i've been thinking a lot about doing like podcast or like the video series and i think it just comes down to sharing stories and learning from people and trying to share that with everyone um so matthew do you want to turn it off yeah, well, you know, I, I want to play the music and then our, a little intro and we, we can get... Oh my God, Matthew made some music. I it's really cheesy. Music. I'm oh, just awesome. like... it's like. Did you make it yourself? Yeah, I did. On I think it's, it's hilarious because to me it sounds like, um, uh, I don't know, like, you know that time when we were growing up and it was kind of like, you know, beach, like, you know, like kind of like that. So anyway, go ahead. This is Matthew's creation. Go play it. Awesome. awesome. Okay.
Hi, and welcome to Y2K Group Chat. This is a series about how artists navigate through their practice and a behind-the-scenes look into their lives. Y2K Group is an art agency and advisory focused on supporting emerging artists in New York and beyond. Matthew, you better keep Luca's voice in that. Oh, yeah, that was cute. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it cheesy? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's like really professional. It's like professional. Like oh, nice. Yeah, I I did that on a computer, MIDI. I think he was joking, Matthew. It's oh. not that professional. No, I'm not. I wasn't joking. <laughs> I was serious about it being professional. Like it feels like a real like, you know, art talk like thing. Because the only the only like art podcast that I started listening to recently was Eflux, like a year or two ago. Oh yeah. Um, but I don't know. T- too many others that are doing that um but yeah i think it sounds great i'm not i'm not i wasn't being sarcastic oh thanks <laughs> yeah. it's okay if you were though <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you so yeah matthew do you want to you have a few questions that you want to start off um yeah first question is um how has your work changed since uh the pandemic um and how has it affected your life and uh, your artwork? Your practice. Yeah, that's a good question to start off with. Um, yeah, I was, I haven't been making things. Um, I, I think I've hit pause on like all production uh, since the pandemic has hit. Um, it's been you know, twice as hard to like think about what to make or think about what would be relevant at a time where um, so much is changing in the ways that we occupy physical space or virtual space or how we interact with each other. Um, And so right now those, my, my thoughts are being occupied about just like what will the future look like? Um, and and in relation to like the art world but um with that said um i still had to contribute to a catalog for the whitney isp uh, because our physical exhibition has been pretty much canceled um so instead of instead of just doing some older uh work um or putting in older work in the catalog i force myself to do something new and what came out of it um was the essay that i shared with you matt um, right which is like a it's a it's a work in progress um uh, and it's titled you know what remains is constant um which is taken from the first and second laws of thermodynamics um and with that um, essay that's just been me looking and reading and researching across a few texts so the texts that I'm like kind of researching or reading across um, are one by the author Lundi Braun the book is called Breathing Race into the Machine um, and that book is looking at the origins and histories of the medical 
device, the spirometer, and Lindy Braun is looking at how the invention has traveled across the world and also how it became racialized. And just for a little you know, context, the spirometer is a device that measures lung capacity. And I was um, specifically interested in the part of the book that talks about um, how it becomes racialized in the United States and its contribution to the racialization of like the medical field and, and a tool to assess um, whose life is worth insuring um, from the beginning of like the late 19th. Um, and also the other book that I'm looking at um, for this text was um, The Human Motor by Anselm Robinbach. And in Robinbach's book, The Human Motor, which is called, it's, it's subtitles like Energy, Fatigue, and Modernity. He's looking at, with like a Marxist analytical framing, he's looking at the history of fatigue, the origins of science of work, and thermodynamics uh, being discovered, and how it shapes labor power. And the parts of that book that I was looking closely at was the origins of fatigue and then the discovery of the first and second law of thermodynamics, which is the first law being the law of energy conservation and the second law being entropy. And the reason why I like this book so much is that what I find him doing is like doing this kind of historical project to kind of show like the parallels that are happening um, around the same time as Braun's book, which is the late 19th century. Um, in showing that um, there is at one point in, you know, a different context, which is more looking at like labor um, of like the worker, that um, we find that the mechanics of the body can't sustain work um, and that everybody is susceptible to some, some form of fatigue. But he's also looking further back at kind of some religious text um, and, and stating that there is like, um, this association of sin and idleness or, or, or becoming dreary or tired during prayer that kind of seeps into society and the rhetoric of like the worker and whether or not they can sustain production or productivity. Um, so the parts of that book that I was looking close to that were just like how, um, the discovery of thermodynamics, um, is happening in tandem with the science of work. So looking at how workers um, move their body and the mechanics of their body and measuring when they get tired. Um, so in my own, in my own like kind of mapping of, of like the relations of science or physics and and also the um, racializations of science and how it determines difference or how it creates difference um, is the reason why I was looking at these two texts and some other texts alongside with them that also speak to this notion of um, the history of science and its inherent um, racist origins um, or how those racist origins get embedded into it. Um, and that more, that, kind of comes out of, I think, 
Lundy Braun's text because she's thinking about like how an invention of a scientific object becomes racialized um, based off of who determines what measurement and how they, you know, retrieve those those measurements through what studies take place. Um, so that's in a nutshell, like what I was attempting to get across in that essay, along with me trying to understand or think through the this kind of this like idea that although science is a knowledge producing system, um, that we we provide truths or that provides truth for us or and that we that we that we believe in. Um, it still, it still holds. It still holds some some form of um, racist ideologies, uh, and and for the most part, it's the people who are involved and in how it's funded. And it's not necessarily like science is racist because you, we do have a lot of um, counter arguments and counter histories that are like being developed today, like when you bronze text and then other people doing the work to, to kind of dismantle that racism that's happening in, in the field of science and all fields of science, whether it's physics or really trying to understand like how, where the origins take place because it's a larger project that's like really bigger than that. No, I think your essay clearly um, explains like the origin of the spirometer and investigation of the, the, the respiratory system. Um, I, I'm the, I've had to take home spirometers before because I've my I've had open heart surgery. And so when I was reading it, I was really blown away by like, first of all, the origin of it and then how it layers, um, like you were saying, like these ideologies and um, really almost trying to prove that because someone is not white would have a better respiratory system or a better it was yeah it was very disheartening but I think it just for me though I think like just you know your essay really painted that picture thing yeah so um I guess like what what made you decide to research like the spirometer and go into uh write your essay about that specific about fatigue and and um What's the word I'm trying to look for, Matthew? <laughs> um, how did you come upon that device as a starting point for your um, research and uh, conceptual framework for, for that specific series? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like this essay... Um, can you hear me? Yep, we got you. Okay, great. Um... I think for me, this essay is somehow going to be tied to a larger um, project. I'm not too sure where, but um, it'll end up um, or how long it will be. But in my older work, um, I was trying to get at why I had this relationship with science that I was so invested in. Um, was it, you know, was it really just the chemical reactions that I was, you know, excited about? Was it, um, 
was it you know the physics of the acoustic levitator that I was just really interested in and at first I think it's like kind of being in awe of like the the possibilities of you know how these things unfold like how the the acoustic levitator is using sound and frequency to 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 lift things and and then also just like seeing and studying like the reactions hold on one second i'll finish that thought okay mm-hmm. thanks for being so patient oh of this course like... oh, oh, definitely thank you <laughs> it's hard to do an interview while you're also trying to take care of a baby but um and if at any point you need to stop, that's yeah, you know, totally fine. Okay, good, good to know. Yeah, we could yeah. do like a like a session two in yeah, case you want to part like, one and two or something, yeah. and like or, edit inter- them or like together. put it together. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be actually pretty awesome too. Because like, I mean, I was almost gonna call and say like, oh, like maybe another day, because it is hard to split my no, yeah, split my mind. No, it's yeah. If you, I mean, if you'd rather do it another day, that's totally fine too. Like whatever you want to do. Are you sure? Because I know you've already set up everything. I just feel like I'm giving you half of myself. No. Oh, Matthew no. loves setting up. <laughs> no, that's all right. Yeah. We... Don't feel bad about any of that. Okay. But whatever you want to do, it's just like, yeah, no biggie. Let's, let's try to do it another day because I feel like I'm, I'm like riffing on things and then I have to stop and try to entertain Luca. Uh, yeah yeah it's totally fine absolutely okay i'm so sorry i I want this to be good and i don't want to do it in a half-ass way of course cool thank you so much okay thank you so good to hear you take care you too bye 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 okay bye can you hear me is everything good uh yes okay cool hi fields Hey, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thanks for joining. Yeah, of course. Cool. So round two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Round two. Round two. So how's it going, Fields? Uh, It's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's relatively good, I guess, considering everything that's happening. Since, yeah, no, totally. um, Overall, I'm okay. Um, yeah, uh, there's not much to say. Like, I mean, there's not much to talk about right now. Like, on a personal level, I feel like just paying attention to like the news too much, trying to give extra, extra attention to the news and social media, which is, you know, it's it's good and bad. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Same. I feel like when I I get so sucked in because I want to know what's happening um especially with you know everything uh but it's it's so easy to like let it consume you and um you start at least i do start to feel a little depressed um (laughs) yeah for sure absolutely yeah Uh, yeah i definitely definitely feel that too you know like especially when i I start my day with like looking at twitter and to see like what i missed yeah (laughs) and and Twitter is like, you know, it's good for discussion and dialogue, but it's also um, 
there's a lot of like just reactions happening. Yeah. Um, so people are like extreme. It feels like people are very angry on there too. And you, you go through the comments, but, um, and, and it's also, I was like trying to figure this out this morning too. Cause, um, someone, I was like talking to someone about my use of Twitter and they're like, yeah, you know, I read an article that says like, you know, if you're on Twitter, it makes you dumb or something. And I, and I was like, oh, what? And I, I didn't read it myself, but I was like, I don't get that. But now I kind of understand, like, it doesn't really make you dumb. It just like, I feel like when there's someone who is saying something publicly that's like opinionated and not based on um, any valid resource, um, people will back that statement up um, by being like, yeah, and like, agreed with you or agreeing with you or I don't know how they would like back someone up I don't know but then once you have someone who like you know says actually that's not cool that you said that or actually that's kind of racist you have people attacking the the person who is like uh, perhaps thinking more clearly about about the statement or the post or the tweet or whatever and it's easy to get sucked into by like just you know, being like, yeah, this headline said this and this and this, and that becomes truth, um, and what, which it's not. It's just, it's just like the way the information is coming towards you in your timeline and how like urgent it feels. I think people take that up very quickly as like news or, or like some type of truth about something that's going on, and there doesn't leave any. It doesn't leave a lot of room for like constructive like dialogue. It just leaves room for people just. Um, attacking each other most of the time in the comments um, so waking up to that sometimes you're just like is this real or am I just falling for the hype like I can't tell <laughs> um, I feel like I have to um, like I don't know look up to make sure a statement is accurate or like look yeah. up and make sure that like even like the image that I'm looking at is accurate because I, I don't know just sometimes it does it just seems like sensationalized yeah i mean if you have to fact check you cannot fact check and then even with that there's a problem with fact checking because like a lot of um websites or news sources are copying and pasting a lot of facts <laughs> they're like they're like looking at you know everybody's like kind of referencing them you know each other and and that also makes the the credibility of it um questionable right because it's like you can go to you can go to like New York Times and then you can go to like um, NPR and then you can go to like you know Washington Post and you know you can go down the, the, the line of, of resources and see that the, the, the structure of, of the language it looks very similar across the board and you're like they're all kind of saying the same thing and um, that could be accurate or it could not be accurate based off of the fact that nothing is sounding original are coming up with this information um i don't know at least that's that's how it happens for me sometimes and sometimes i'm very just like oh this is true this is this is what's happening this is urgent i have to like share this information and, and not fact check and then later find out after reading through the, the comments that there are um other sources saying something entirely different or saying like that's actually inaccurate yeah and then with, you know with like with artificial intelligence, like <laughs> getting um, better and better at creating these deep fakes, like there's the deep fake video, there's a deep fake like 
you know, um, speak recognition now. Um, there's deep fake, like, even writing tools so that you can have, you know, like, kind of um, a tool that generates, like, text for you that sounds truthful. Um, Wait, can you elaborate by... more about this? I don't, I didn't know that there was, like, a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, a speech one I was, I'm not aware of. Yeah, so, th- so recently Jay-Z... Um, um, submitted a cease and desist to this um, group of um, engineering students. Um, I forget where I can look it up really quick, but um, he he sent a cease and desist letter to them, and their 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 project is working with a machine learning software. I'm not an expert at this at all, but I'm, I'm guessing it's like some type of like uh, program that they're building that will allow them to like use the voice of anyone and have it say something else. So what they did is they made, they made Jay-Z read Hamlet. Like they made his voice read Hamlet. And then so Jay-Z sent like a copyright, like (laughs) infringement letter to them or his, his label or I'm I'm guessing it's him, but it's like Jay-Z didn't write Hamlet, but it's the fact that they use the likeness of his voice that he's able to send that um, cease and desist to them, which I found was like, really interesting because i think copyright is very complicated to me um like even with like lebron james trying to copyright taco tuesday and i was like you can't copyright taco tuesday like (laughs) like you know taco cabana had taco tuesdays when i was in high school like like taco cabana matthew do you know what taco cabana is no i don't don't know i think it's like a i think it's like a um is it a texas thing or like a south it's like, I mean, I, I know there's, I, I, I've seen them in Houston and I've seen them in San Antonio and I, and I think I've seen them in Austin. I haven't seen them any, anywhere outside of Texas. I would say that for sure. You're from, um, you're from Texas, right, Fields? I went to high school in, in San Antonio. Yeah. And then like one year of middle school. Um, in San Antonio, we had tons of Taco Cabanas and that was the place that we went to for a lot of different reasons, you know, whether it was like after an event at, that happened at school, you would then, you know, regather at Taco Cabana, TC's, like, you're like, let's go to TC's before or after the party. I don't That's know. So like, funny. Yeah. <laughs> fights would happen. Like people would fight in the parking lot. Oh my God. So like people meeting there to try and it's like, (laughs) it's like, it's a a funny place for me, not just because like of San Antonio, but also my, like my memories of like high school, Mm -hmm. a lot of them took place or take place like somewhere next to or inside of a taco cabana. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so you went to high school in, in San Antonio? Is that what you said? Yeah. Cool. And then when did you move to New York? Um, 2011. Yeah. Oh. 2011. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because I know when you moved to New York, but I'm just asking for the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I know you are. It's so, these things are so funny. That, these that are, are weird, recorded. right? <laughs> yeah. I did one earlier um, that was a Zoom um, oh, fun. conversation that was pre-recorded. And that was the first time. I, and then... Like they're like, hey, how's it going? Like everybody, and and um, this is Fields, and I like had to like wave and be like, hi everyone, you know, and it just I had, like giggled kind of because it was just so silly. Like no one's there, no one's, no one's really there. 
Who am I saying hi to? <laughs> That's so funny. Cool. What was yeah. it for? Um, it's for um, this um, person, Jazalyn McNeil, um, is curating a show at the new school next year, and it's called The Black Beyond. And they wanted to do an artist talk prior to the show um, with some of the artists that will be um, in the group show. Uh, the group exhibition, um, she had some questions set up about my work and um, the recent, and like some stuff about the recent essay and like how that's informing the practice. Yeah, it was good. It was good talk. It was good, good conversation. That sounds cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully, um, hopefully we'll have some good questions. I haven't listened to any of the episodes yet um, that y'all have done so far, but like, I don't know if the aim is like for something more formal or casual. Really. <laughs> okay, cool. So I'm, <laughs> I'm totally good with trying to do casual. Yeah, about I this prefer stuff. casual. The first time, so we we only have one episode so far, and we've recorded a second episode. But the first one is just like Matthew um, speaking to an artist and I'm not on it. And then the second one, I was so shy that you could barely hear me. Oh, no. <laughs> but Matthew hasn't posted that one yet because we just we wanted to wait a little bit. Yeah, yeah. just be um, uh, sensitive about what's going on. So we wanted to wait a little bit and... Yeah, no, it was fine. Uh, I had to raise her volume up by like 30 dB. <laughs> I mean, we were sharing a mic though, so. Yeah. So, <laughs> and he would put it in my face and I'm just like, I don't have a question. <laughs> 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 oh gosh. Yeah, so this is going to be super casual because I think if it was formal, I'd, I, I don't know if I'd want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. That works for me. I'm, I'm totally down for doing these either way. I was just, I just wanted to check in with y'all. Um, yeah, thank you. So you said you're from Texas and then you moved to New York in 2011. When did you begin your, your practice? Like, I know that, I think you, when was it? What did you study again at UNT? Photography. Photography. Oh, cool. Okay, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did that like develop into what you're doing now? Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, when I was at the University of North Texas, so like just to give you a little bit more background um, about the development of me going into photography at, in Denton. Um, so when I was in San Antonio, I went to um, San Antonio Community College, and I I was fumbling, like I was like, um, figure out what I want to do. Um, because I, I didn't know like what I what I wanted to do, uh, I, I was like in between of like being curious about meteorology and curious about um, maybe something in like psychology, um, but I really didn't know what I wanted to like study um, right after high school. Going to the community college like allowed me to um, kind of explore many different areas. Um, and not waste a bunch of money um, at like a university Um, and I took a photography class there like a black and white like very basic uh, course but all film Um, and yeah developing your own prints and stuff and developing your own negatives as well and uh, I just like quickly really 
fell in love with photography and I also fell in love with the idea that you could like do things with photography. I mean, really early on, like my interests were like super basic. Like I, I, at the time I was like, yeah, I like that, you know, with food advertisements, you can like make someone hungry and thinking more specifically about like the, the uh, documentation of the actual products, right? Like making a burger look really good or making you know, taco cabana quesadillas really, really delicious and cheesy. I don't know. I was like really into that, um, but not thinking, you know, you know, and the, the psychological um, aspect of that as well. You know, like how, you know, there's like more than just the image, there's the language and then there's um, other things that are like um, orbiting why around why we get hungry when we, we see certain um, documentation of, of food. And um, at San Antonio College, I like quickly fell in love with making images and, you know, from taking the image to actually being in the darkroom too, you know, it's just something very new to me and I had no idea what I was doing, but I also felt like, right. And then, you know, at Community College, you have the option of focusing in, in certain degrees. Photography at that school wasn't one of them. So I just took all the photography classes um, and pretty much my time was up and I was like, oh, what do I do now? And um, I just transferred the credits to UNT and, and entered the program with this like background and mostly taking pictures for commercial or journalism um, route, not really having interest in fine arts. So like at San Antonio College, they were like really prepping you for um going out and becoming like a wedding photographer or someone who, you know, work for a paper or something, you, you know, that's what they had in mind. Like, so there was only one art photography class and no one took it serious. It was just like something that was like a less um, rigid. So it felt like more flexibility in, in that one class that San Antonio College offered. So looking to finish like my BFA, I didn't know if art was the right direction, but there was a, there was a school that um, me and, and, a, and a partner at the time decided to both go to, which was University of North Texas. And I was like, oh, they have a fine art photography program there. Maybe I'll just do that. You know, as the story unfolded, like I got introduced to like more art history and more artists that were doing things that I had never seen before. And I was just like, you know, like, oh, this is um, exciting. Um, by the time I left University of North Texas, I was kind of working more with video, with like found footage um, of going back to those like kind of commercials um, of food that I was watching so much and, you know, getting hungry. By, and then and I wanted to kind of pick, pick them apart and make work about that. And so that's what I ended up doing towards the end of um my PFA and um, didn't have any plans after I graduated um, and stayed in Denton for a little bit and then moved uh, back home for like a month or two with my parents and then uh, went to New York, uh, drove to New York by myself and and had a couple friends there and I was just, you know, slept on couches and you know slept in the car and you drove from <laughs> san antonio to new york 
Yeah, I did. I like at the time, couch surfing was popular with my friends, and like all my friends who who traveled were like, yeah, just do couch surfing, and they'd be like, I'll vouch for you because you needed, you know, you needed credibility, right? You needed like people to be like, yeah, this person's an awesome, per- you know, is They're awesome. They're not gonna and steal your stuff. <laughs> yeah, I did that. Like I, I um had two friends in Colorado at the time, and um had a friend in Philadelphia so I knew like I'd be fine once I got to those places but I had to plan like a couch surfing trip like and, like I went from Colorado through Nebraska to Chicago and then wow. to Pennsylvania and then to New York just because like I because I couldn't afford like for hotels like yeah no, I definitely I was I was Especially barely after college yeah I was like barely had enough for gas you know like after graduating I worked at um worked as a pizza delivery person um at TJ's Pizza in Denton and you know I saved some money and I was like sleeping on someone's couch then already and like paying very little for rent so I was just like I'm just gonna save and try to make it to New York um and yeah, and then coming to New York, I, I, I was, you know, I was making stuff, but I was in my, in my room, I didn't have a studio. Um, and I also was like, kind of, you know, shifting towards uh, working in urban gardens too. I, once I got to New York, that was, again, that was something like with food, but also exciting and new. And I, and I was wanting to explore that, that world um, in Brooklyn. And so... There, was, there wasn't, like, a time where I was just, like, I'm not an artist and, like, I'm just going to be a farmer or a living gardener, you know, like, um, which I felt really passionate and, and very serious about for a long time. And then I um, I think I ran into a couple of um, bad experiences in the agricultural, agricultural business world. Um, hmm. urban garden world and I was just like you know no I'm not this is not me and and I was still like the thing the thing that you know that brought me back to wanting to pursue like a, a career in life as an artist was like even when I was in those those jobs of like agricultural business like working for startups or working for a farm or working for urban garden um the way I problem solved, it always made me think about like how it would make work. Um, and, and it's more like, more like method, not so much like going to the studio, sitting at a chair with a laptop, not like this, but like, I, I just like some, somehow in my, in my mind, I, I like worked out a way that I was brought back to like thinking about my practice when I was problem solving in these other industries and and I just it just made me uh realize I'm always thinking about like work and art and like how these things uh, are all you know interwoven um but yeah so then I, I made a huge transition and decided to like uh switch gears to pursue my MFA what kind of work were you making at like UNT like your thesis what was that um, at the University of North Texas, I was making sculptures, drawings, uh, some videos, 
and I was thinking about um, my relationship with food, fast food more specifically, um, and that tie to family, like and how like memory food and family were like all these things that interlinked uh, for me. Um, but I but I went back to fast food because I just I was just like you know thinking about being at home you know alone and watching TV when like my parents aren't there and just like seeing these commercials and being like, man, I really want, you know, this thing now. So I, I, for the video work, I like, you know, was uh, using a lot of sound footage of just commercials and, and trying to isolate moments where I thought that it was like, you know, the prestige of the commercial, you know, like where the, like where you, you saw the, 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 um, you saw the product, you saw the burger, you saw the taco, you saw the whatever, you know, at its like most desirable point, you know. And so I wanted to isolate them and repeat them and slow them down. And so I did that. And then that just kind of built into like me making more videos because they were like, you know, very quickly edited and, you know, some would say like super cut kind of style. Um, and but I wanted to like elaborate on that. So then I started isolating moments where I thought they were like, you know, definitely biased, you know, like, you know, in terms of like, or like, or targeting us very specific, you know, communities. Um, you know, uh, so uh, there was like a section of, of the video that I would like to isolate where, you know, it, it was pretty obvious. They're like, you know, constructing a stereotype around black people and, and like, you know, desirability of a certain type of food. And same thing with, like, how they would target men and with the use of, like, you know, sex, you know, and food. Like, Carl's Jr. has that burger, that commercial with Paris Hilton, like, washing a, a Mercedes or, I don't know, some expensive car um, while she's eating a burger. It's like, she's, she's, like, washing a black, like, you know, Mercedes or Rolls Royce or something, right? She's doing that. She's washing it in a bikini. And then on top of that, she's also eating like the new Carl's Jr. burger. Like, this I is remember crazy. that commercial. <laughs> that commercial was so wild. I was like, who got away with that? And like, <laughs> <laughs> she got a lot like, of like heat for it too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, I, I hope it wasn't just her. I hope it was like the director, the art director too, you know, like yeah. it's just like they, they, there was like a team of people who came up with that idea and all agreed that it was a good one, which is really strange. Gosh. Well, was that like 10 years ago now? <laughs> yeah. Maybe more. Longer. I mean, it's 20, wow. yeah, it's maybe 30 years. It's 2020. Oh, it's even older. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's when Paris was like saying things like "that's hot." Yeah, <laughs> which I loved. Yeah, but but yeah, so like I was I was making a lot of work around fast food um, to answer your question, and and sometimes you know with sculptures I was casting like burgers and casting food and blocks and thinking about them as like pieces of some fossilized. Um, society um, and then I also did drawings of um, very tall burgers um, um, <laughs> so yeah that was pretty much what I was working on towards the end of my BFA yeah 
I didn't realize you had such a fascination with food. Yeah. Or fast yeah, food. I mean, or fast food. For, for <laughs> fast food and food. Um, yeah, I mean, and that, you know, and I think it just kind of transformed over time once I got to New York. It became like, okay, I can critique like fast food, but that's like throwing a small stone in, in like a really deep, deep, massive ocean like it, it speaks to some but it doesn't speak volumes to most you know because we already know like that this stuff is bad and we already know that they're you know advertising this way because they do want to target those audiences so I, I kind of shifted gears out of that space and actually participate in the more active way you know so that's why I, I, I got into um, the urban garden community when I got to New York because it felt like more solution-based uh, kind of strategies as opposed to just like critiquing it for you know the sake of just critiquing it um, and speaking to uh, speaking in the echo chamber um so once I got to Brooklyn I just yeah I just tried to like volunteer and 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 be a part of like different schools that like had um, urban gardens Bushwick High School um campus used to have a really amazing program that was ran by several several people um, outside of the high school. Um, so Maggie Cheney was one of them, and this person named Sean also was a part of it. And they were they were going inside the school and like making a whole um, curriculum that taught the students like how to grow their own food, how to run their own aquaponics, how to run their own hydroponics. Um, and I tried to be there participating and helping and speaking with the, the students as much as I could. And in between, like, working a nine-to-five, because um, uh, that felt, like, more important for a long time. But, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's Such really a... cool. So how does that speak to your work now, or is it in any way uh, right. correlated? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I didn't answer your question. Really. No, um, no. <laughs> I, I love hearing uh, all the details, so no worries. Um, yeah, I mean, does it correlate? I don't know if it if it does. Um, and I think if I tried to make it, it would be a reach, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for a startup in Brooklyn. That was like a really interesting time because I had never worked for a startup before. So I didn't know that culture and... Um, but it allowed me to take my interest of agriculture or like working with food or vegetables and produce. Um, and I had worked in a grocery store before, uh, and it was kind of like that, you know, I was kind of doing the same things, you know, like where I was a produce, I was basically a produce manager of, of like the, the branch in, in Brooklyn, which meant that I was just like, uh, responsible for making sure that, you know, all the fruits and vegetables were not just like rotting um, and trying to, you know, determine what the shelf life is of certain products so that we don't overbuy or underbuy um, for people to purchase online. Um, before Fresh Direct, um, really got into like working with organics and, and, and kind of opening, expanding their produce, food, you know, their selection. Um, they wanted to be the middle person between, like, the farmer or the, you know, the 
the local butcher and the customer, right? Because it's hard to get, you know, to a market every week or every day um, for these local businesses or these local farms. So, because they have to be actually working, you know, growing food and harvesting. And so they can't be in all those places at once. But it was there that um, I think I I had to learn quickly about like, a lot of things I didn't know. And so how do I make cilantro not wilt <laughs> in this in this 30 degree cooler? And so I'd have to do all this research and then I'd be like, yeah, what if we, we used a beverage refrigerator that we already have and store the cilantro and all the herbs in this machine outside of the freezer so it doesn't like go bad in two days. But I think, but I think it was like doing that research and, and figuring out like how to work on a technical level that brought me back to like thinking about art and thinking about problem solving in my practice and and then just getting kind of excited about yeah that way of working and thinking. Um, and this is like a long stretch, but like I, but once I got to to. Um, to the University of Pennsylvania to do my, my MFA, like I already had like kind of this growing, you know, interest of kind of forced research and forced um, use of problem solving thinking that like, you know, made me excited about going back to school for, and going back to school specifically for art. Cause I was on the fence between like, you know, I'm like, do I want to go for, you know, like a real discipline that I felt like would be more useful to me that could be applied in in an industry that would be lucrative, you know, like that type of thing, you know, so I was thinking like I could go back for physics, I can go back for engineering, but then I think I talked myself out of it because I was like, that's too much math, I'm not that serious about it, Um, so I went back for my MFA, and when I got to Penn, I, I started to kind of go back to some of that research and and just you know when you're when you're looking at things on like how to keep these like bunches of cilantros alive longer you you go down other youtube channel like you know rabbit holes and i was archiving a lot of, of videos that were already demonstrating like these really interesting like observations through the use of physics and so i think being in an MFA program, it gave me the opportunity to like um, look at those closer and then also take them a little bit more serious um, and not as like a interest or a hobby, but actually try to um, replicate or do those those demonstrations or those um, or use those tools um, as a way to to make work. Yeah, but they're they're definitely not I, I don't believe I don't think that they're connected. Someone else can make the connection, but I don't think that they're connected, you know, the, the stuff that I was doing in my BFA and what I did um in my MFA and also what I'm doing now. Oh, they it could be in like a sphere of like production in a way. Cause I yeah. mean, you know, the fast food suburban fast food thing is like honing in on commercialized, like marketable goods. For mm-hmm. you know a middle class certain middle class uh sphere, and then like you know you're trying to work through like urban startup culture, you know delivering food to maybe like a certain class 
they're the middlemen, but they're, you know, not letting the actual consumer talk to the farmer, which I think was, was like one of the points yeah. for some of that. And then I think maybe those types of systems, I, I can see like a lineage into like your work mm-hmm. now. I mean, it would be interesting to learn more about what you're doing at UPenn. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I, you know, when I, my first semester at the University of Pennsylvania, I, uh, I, I was introduced to, to thinking about how um, what I was reading can, like, um, implicate the work and how language or text or dialogue could could implicate my work so um and that was through a class that I took there with Sharon Hayes and Rachel Zolf called Across Forms where we were looking at work that um where text or language may inform the object of video performance or document um in many different types of you know many ways you know not not directly but sometimes indirectly uh, maybe it's through the recording of the conversation maybe it's through the filming of the conversation or maybe it's actually using text um, in the painting or the or the print um, so thinking around language and art and that gave me the opportunity to um, explore my relationship to the conversation to dialogue but also to what I was reading and what I was thinking about and I wanted to try to get to a, towards a place to think, you know, allow the, allow the language or allow the text to inform the work um, through, through the use of certain materials or more specific materials. So I was sometimes being um, literal with like how the text would in, inform the material or the use of the material and other times trying to be like more metaf- um, metaphorical. Um, thinking more metaphorically about how to use it or how to apply it. Um, so it resulted in, you know, sculptures that sometimes had, you know, phrases and words on it uh, or letters on it. And, and other times it was the material was trying to speak in the space of like a passage that I was really interested in. And I think that's like how I entered the program and then the way I left the program, I think, was a lot different. I, I, I kind of tried to hone in on not just how what I was researching or reading or, or studying at the time would inform the, the work. Just literally, I was trying to think through how to build a body of work that was floating around just this really specific uh, idea that's working with and through science. Um, that started um, at, at like my halfway point. I wanted to make a performance that was, you know, performing with this um, acoustic levitator. Is a device that can levitate small, light objects or liquids um, with sound, um, and more with, more specifically with um, sound waves that are kind of bouncing off of each other that make these, uh, if you could imagine, like a stepladder between when um, a wave, two waves going into opposite directions, like past each other, 
they create these nodes or these steps that things can kind of rest on. Um, really light, light spherical objects and very, very light things that have very little volume. So rubbing alcohol is one and, and styrofoam is another. Um, but those who are really invested in, in um, the mechanisms of acoustic levitators have levitated larger objects and more or less uniformed uh, shaped objects as well. I built mine after, after a kit. I followed these uh, instructions on the website Instructables on how to wire it and solder it and, you know, make Arduino talk to it so that I could control it. Um, I made my own, um, but then I wanted to perform with it and I was trying to think, like, what would I levitate? And I, I started to think about, again, like, you know, my own, my own history and my own experiences. And, and actually it sent me to a place that I was thinking about a time where I was using this product S curl, um, a lot in high school, again, back to high school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) TCs, you know, um, um, but yeah, it was like, it was like a trend also. And I, I mean, I, I know people still use it today. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew a few of my friends who use escrow and escrow is a, is a hair product that like, um, you know, it works as like a perm or a hair relaxer. So it straightens your hair. And so when you have very thick curly hair, it makes it very like either completely straight or it makes it um, kind of nice and curly. And like you, you put, you know, this gel in your hair. Um, so I would use that like a lot in high school. And I thought I was like really cool. And, you know, <laughs> one, one day, one day, like my hair was too long and, and it made my hair very straight. And I just like was looking in the mirror at, before I was going to school. And I was like, man, I do not look like myself. You know, like I, I knew something was off, you know, um, yeah. I don't, I didn't talk to anybody about this. Of course, I would just like have this, I had this moment in the mirror by myself, you know, it's just like, this is, this is weird. Um, May I ask you, why do you think it was a trend to use that product in your hair? Like, why did uh, you feel like you needed to straighten your hair? I think, um, yeah, belonging. Um, I think if I can think back, I, I do remember who was like the first person. I mean, cause I remember seeing like, a lot of my friends, like, with this style, and I was like, you know, that looks good, like, that looks cool, on, on, you know, so-and-so, and I was good on this person, and I was like, I want to try that, and then, um, and I think, and I think also, like, you know, I don't know if, I don't, I can't say actually specifically, but I, I wouldn't put it past, I wouldn't put it past, like, um, the, the possibility that there were people that we were, like, listening to, and, and, like, also watching, like, whether listening to like musically or listening to like or no or watching like on on the screen you know that we're also using that product too or also have that kind of hair too but yeah there's like there's a larger conversation on like why you know people who have um thicker and coarser hair either at that time were straightening their hair or even continue to um straighten their hair um, and that's that's a it's like a longer and 
um, deeper conversation. Um, but I remember doing it as like, just like, yeah, my friends are doing it. I should do it. You know, this type of like wanting to have like some type of belonging through like how my hair was styled. And, um, I don't know. And I think like when I was at Penn, I started thinking about that moment of like having that kind of internal dialogue with myself and like being like, this is not, this is not me feeling like kind of like, you know, suspended in that thought, you know, and like feeling like I was, you know, not just like looking at myself in the mirror, but looking at myself in the mirror, like, but looking at myself, looking at myself in the mirror. Like, so there was like this other, like outside of the outside perspective, you know, out of body. Uh, yeah, like out of yeah. body, yeah. Um and I and I wanted to hold that moment. You know, I wanted to I wanted to to like hold that memory and I wanted to lift that memory and I wanted to think through that brand and that, that hair care, hair straightening escrow brand. I wanted to think through that. So I I used the acoustic levitator to do that and, and so what happened in the performance was it was a performance for um, a live camera feed that was then projected onto a wall. And I'm situated behind the audience. Um, so what they see in front of them is a, um, is a projection of uh, my hands levitating a strand of my hair that is going under the treatment of the um, escrow process to try to expand that that vision, you know, there's a there's a macro uh, lens onto a digital camera that is, and that image is, is running to a projector. But what that camera sees is the the space of the acoustic levitator with the hair floating in the center. And every every once in a while, you see my hands come into that space, um, applying the relaxer or applying the texturizer, applying the other ingredients of that product to the strand of hair that's floating in space. And um, while that's happening, I'm also reading um, the instructions as I do each step. But I've edited the instructions to kind of slide and some theory that I was reading alongside of coming into that project. So there is phrases that work as citations to what and how I was thinking about that memory um, in that moment. So Fred Moten thinking about, talking about, speaking about um, the hold and how to bear this hold. And, and it was just really like thinking about what is the hold and how is he, and how is he talking about that? And yeah, there's, there's definitely like a reading on like specifically, like I was thinking about that, that use of, of word and that grammar, but I wanted to, again, like kind of work in the space of that sentence or work in the space of that phrase, like the whole. But I also was reading Uto Styral, um, and where she's talking about groundlessness, kind of that removal of that foundation, whether it's like the foundation of political forces or the foundation of financial security or financial find out like a safety net of some sort. But she's thinking about it in many different ways, but I was kind of really leaning on the, like this idea of a groundlessness in, in the space of that memory and the space of that internal dialogue. So yeah, you have those three things happening all at once. The performance was about nine minutes because I just go from, you know, step one to the last step. I don't remember how many steps there are. And then the performance is, is over. So there's this idea of sampling or mixing 
and amplifying, you know, through the use of sound and the specific type of technology that uses sound to suspend or to hold also, depending on how you want to think about the, the mechanics of that device. Cool. We were yeah. lucky enough to witness this. We were there. Mm-hmm. You were yeah. there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was really cool. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, that was, I would have to, I have to admit, like, in terms of performance, like, that was, you know, kind of my experience coming into performance. Like, I hadn't done that type of work before, but it felt very appropriate for that, to get that idea through. I think it needed to be, you know, specifically a a live performance for that live video feed, Um, working with the documentation of that work has been very tricky in terms of like, how do I, (laughs) yeah, like how do I show the documentation of this, of this performance that I did and and using a combination of like a camera like that is filming me with a frame of, that involves like the projection myself and the audience and also using a video documentation of what the camera just saw. Um, which is just the acoustic levitator and kind of, you know, going back and forth between those two things. I, yeah, I also like how um, in person you, you told me that you, you know, kind of also thought about how, and I don't remember what century or or when exactly your research took place, but um, having to do with like doctors and how they teach their students and how it was kind of like a, like a more of a performance of like, um, you know, them being in the center and then, and then kind of going through the process of what, whatever it is that they're, in, you know, that teaching the students how to, I don't know, perform surgery or something. And, and yeah. like that sort of like theatrical, mm-hmm. uh, layout. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? I, I forget what that type of, um, like medical theater. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, a part of coming into that um, that work was, you know, asking uh, the libraries of the University of Pennsylvania specifically to to see layouts of and sketches of older uh, classrooms that held classes and and demonstrating different operations or surgical method surgical methods. You know, there's kind of this amphitheater seating or arena seating so like the classroom would have the professor and um also um the the cadaver that is being performed on maybe at the lower level and then you have you know seating that is like kind of cascading up and like around um and and i say the university of pennsylvania specifically because it does have a history um of of um, demonstrating um, surgery and also demonstrating the use of anesthesia, um, it's a it's a has a very big medicine program, and that's been around for a very long time, um, and that's also very problematic because it had, it did have like very racist um, physicians and doctors and you know educators um, in that program as well um but I, I but i after after that performance i also started to look at you know um paintings and um and uh, i guess like some prints of 
um, medical theater from the 19th and 18th century as well. Um, just to just to like kind of think about if I were to do this performance again, like where should the audience be um, and how should I be situated with them or not with them uh, or beside them or, or, or not beside them. Um, and so there was like some images that stuck out, but that, that, um, that was just like a collection of, of images really. I never went forward with anything. I just think it was nice to collect a series of of paintings that had this kind of stadium seating and see like how these demonstrations were taking place. Um, uh, and it's and it, you know depending on where you are in time and and place with these these paintings or these images. Uh, the the seating is different and it's different for I think specific reasons um, and because it, they were they were a spectacle right they were a spectacle it wasn't it wasn't always that it was for the use of education sometimes it was for the the use of of entertainment to see a body be cut up and open um, was you know, I guess, entertaining to people um, to see. Um, but there is also paintings in at Penn too that are very famous um, of, of these demonstrations taking place because they were like kind of, they were also like very pivotal moments in that field of medicine, like being the first to demonstrate the use of, you know, anesthesia. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that also, um, you know, these paintings um, that I was seeing, um, one that stood out, you know, more specifically was um, Hogarth's uh, Reward of Cruelty, um, because it was it was basically a, it's 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 an image it's a painting you know where um, the symbolisms. Um, that show up are all revol all revolving around the cadaver's um, sense, basically. So you have a dog eating his intestines because supposedly the myth goes around this painting that the the person who's being operated on like harmed a, harmed an animal. Um, his eyes being poked out because. I say his, it could be, I don't, I don't know if there's any anatomy there that shows me that it's actually he, but the, the, the body that has his eye being poked out is that's happening because they supposedly, you know, harm someone's eye in, in their lifetime. So, um, it, it's trying to talk about kind of morality and, but also like through, through this kind of religious moral concern, um, and that painting. Um, but but as I continue trying to collect these image, images, it did lead me down to um, a painting uh, by Robert Tom, T-H-O-M, that is of J. Marion Sims uh, looking at a, um, a black um, woman, you know, slave, um, 
and the operation hasn't taken place, um, but it seems like in the painting, you know, Sims is is going over possibly um, what operation is going to happen, and you know, and along with Sims and this woman, um, you know, who's who's like kneeling on top of this table in front of him. Um, there's also these two other white male figures who look like they may be assistants. And then there's two other um, people who were possibly uh, enslaved um, looking around the corner behind this white sheet, you know, this white privacy sheet um, to listen in on what, what is about to take place. And, and, I, and I point this one out because, you know, Sims and his hist in his history of performing and operating on black women without any anesthesia um, oh, uh, is like I think important to like as to how I got to wanting to to investigate you know science's relationship with racism um, and and science relationships with, with bias um, that's been taking place for a very long time and it continues to. Um, but I think like, you know, I didn't, I didn't make any work specifically about this painting, but I think, you know, through looking at these images of medical theater, this one shows up and, and I, and I paused on this one, I think for a very long time, even looking at it right now, um, I think still kind of speaks volumes to me and like how like yeah this is I think where this this image like really did allow me to pivot the work um, and and like what I was thinking about as an introduction an introduction into like what I was trying to get at in school and like where I'm kind of continuing to take the practice um, today. Um, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the name of the the painter again? Um, it's Robert. Um, and then the last name is T H O M. I wish you were. <laughs> See on Zoom, I could just like send you a link to this image. Um, <laughs> but we're 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 like old school here um, <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> okay, like, so I just so... looked it up. Yeah, so I'm looking at the image of it. That is disturbing. Yeah, 1952, right? Wow. I think it is. Um... Oh gosh. And it's really interesting because I wouldn't really understand the context of it had you not explained um, the, you know, the meaning behind it or what this, I mean, I would, yeah. I mean, it just, it, looking at it is, you know, terrifying, obviously, because it's just the way yeah. that they're kind of dominating the space, the, yeah. the, the men. Um, but, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's very haunting yeah and you know this is someone who um you know J. Marion Sims who is who's been celebrated there's a there's a monument um in New York a lot of work has been done I guess to um to remove that statue of him because of his legacy because his legacy of of, of, of racism and sexism I was saying earlier like yeah that that painting being kind of an intro to what, I, what I'm doing now. Yeah, I definitely see the correlation 
do you mind going into depth more about your your recent uh, essay and the work that you're you're doing? Yeah, so the essay that I've been working on is called uh, "What Remains Is Constant." It's me trying to look across several moments in time where there's some particular discoveries and um, inventions of scientific objects. I give a couple accounts from several texts that I've been reading, one being Breathing Race into the Machine by Lindy Braun, where she is talking about the invention of the spirometer in Europe and then how it travels globally and becomes racialized once it hits the States and continues to be racialized and and also weaponized against folks who are disabled, um, but that not being also separate from reading and constructing difference and categories through measuring a lung capacity. And then also uh, looking at how Anson Rappenbach and his human motor his book, Human Motor, Energy Fatigue and the Origins of Modernity, uh, he's uh, making a, a case that's about um, labor power and fatigue and the, and the, me- the mechanics of the body. So seeing how these observations in thermodynamics and discoveries in thermodynamics in the 18th century, around the same time the invention spirometer is happening, um, in Europe, um, you have uh, the science of work coming into existence because energy or this boundless energy that nature and the universe have, you know, humans also have. But what is not realized is that the body does get tired or the body, not all bodies move the same way and not all bodies have the same amount of capacity as, you know, who working factors want them to have. So what comes out of that is the study of when the body gets tired or when the body becomes fatigued and, and trying to solve through creating more efficient and mechanized movements of the body to perform more uh, work. I try to like point or point to several accounts that happen that, that seem very important to me as moments in history where I'm seeing, you know, the racialization of the scientific object come into existence, but is being taken up as truth or is being taken up as like a valid and knowledgeable precision instrument that validates and interprets numerical information that, you know, to to most at the time would be abstract, but Um, this measurement of lung capacity is being uh, counted and transformed into statistical data, it operates as truth, right? And so, you know, and this is, this is, um, and to be more specific, I I guess, like um, Benjamin Gould or Gold makes a a very large report um, investigations in the military and anthropological uh, statistics of American soldiers. And that report comes out in the uh, late 19th century. And, and Gould, who is trained as an astronomer and had already been doing these like massive projects of turning numbers into um, visual representations through 
creating tables and and using statistics as a science is commissioned to do this this project where he is measuring weight, height, chest size, head, skull size, and lung capacity of uh, white soldiers, sailors, prisoners, and black soldiers of the Union Army. He also does measurement for first-generation um, indigenous men as well. He, he specifically only worked with men um, uh, as a variable in his, in his uh, report. And when he sets up these categories and these tables, he his observations lead him to um, state that those who are white had, um, you know, stronger lungs or more volume in their lungs. Or, and those who were black did not. They had they had a low capacity. They had weaker lungs. Um, and this is this is this says this report mentions nothing of the environmental and social conditions of of either side, um, either category or either um, person. So what is missing from that information is the type of work or the type of labor that the white soldier or the black soldier was doing or, or how they were living. And that's important because um, the living conditions of, of black soldiers was not the same and the, the health and well-being of those soldiers was not the same either. Um, so there was more pneumonia um, cases in the black soldiers that wasn't documented. There was more um, uh, cases of tuberculosis as well, um, which all affect the respiratory system, um, which all would lead to their uh, lung capacity to be determined as weaker. Um, but um, that information is, is obviously omitted from his, re his report. And of course, he's keeping up the ideology of theorists that are pro-slavery at the time that want to uh, keep those who are black under the um, governance and management of, of white, white men. So him coming out with this huge report saying, like, people who are black have weak lungs gave... Um, another piece of evidence for pro-slavery theorists um, to say, uh, yes, it is, it is very significant that Black Americans should be working only under forced labor and only under um, set living conditions because under freedom they obviously don't know how to take care of themselves and this this study that Gould does um, tries to prove that um, and so that's one moment in time that I try to, 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 to point to or signal out or highlight in the essay and then I go back you know and, and try to and try to um, make sense of how at the same, not the same exact time, but around the same time, you also have Moray um, studying 
studying the body of the worker and and studying like when it gets tired and at what point does it, do muscles experience fatigue and this is all is being done through some applications of, of physics and photography and I just am trying to hold you know in the essay these these ideas um, because I mean as of right now I think this essay is a work in progress and I, I see it as something that will like kind of open up some more dialogue but right now it it does move in the direction of like where my thought is which is to look deeper into or investigate or look more closely at science or the funding of certain research projects and its relationship to to racism and, and creating bias and, and constructing difference that's not just biological difference because the science community has ties to to working outside of just biological difference and, and constructing that difference um and creating those those categories and determining the value of a body and whether or not it should be insured or not, or whether it should be taken seriously or not, or determining whether or not it can experience pain. So this essay is, is I think, trying to situate itself still. Um, I think it still needs uh, you know, some revising and re- rereading, um, definitely, to understand what it does for my practice as well. Would you say the essay is like a work of art or kind of a separate kind of text piece? I was just curious because I um, feel like it could stand alone by itself. Yeah, I, I think um, I think it will be like a part of a, a body of work, maybe. And I do think it can it can stand alone, and I also think it can be in company with other um, inquiries into the manufacturing of scientific objects and the development of, and the, also the constructions of bias and how those things operate hand in hand because the spirometer is just one object right and entropy and and discovery of the law of, uh, or the energy of conservation so i'm just very much like honing on a very narrow way of trying to think through these discoveries and objects but I think it can be expanded because there's definitely more instruments that are used to create bias and there's definitely more practices in not just the medical field, but in other modes of science um, that develop, you know, a false sense of objective thinking and seeing the world. I think of it right now as something that um, is not separate from the work that I'm, I'm like progressing towards, but definitely a part of like a larger project that I'm trying to trying to build um, that I think will take many forms like I think sometimes it's necessary to write for me to just the conditions of like the time that we're living in right now too you know there's you know it's COVID-19 kind of um, speaking to the the racism and the bias that um I'm, I think I'm also seeing in the history of the spirometer um, happening uh, is like unfolding, you know, in front of us, you know, where you see that bias happen in, in, in communities where the majority of black people are living. Um, and, and also with the movement and the uprising of, of 
you know, the, d- the death of black women and men at the hands of the cops, you know, like these things are not divorced from each other. I don't believe so. Um, so I think, but, but being in, in this time and this, um, and not having access to a studio and not having access to like getting materials to like, you know, this is, yeah, this is work right now for me, um, because, um, this is, I, I mean, I, I think I have to, I have to think, you know, think about these things and continue to, to think around them, you know, and, and how they're still um, implicating the work. So I guess to answer your question, like, yeah, it's part of the practice, but I think, I definitely think um, there are some other uh, projects that will come in the future that will be tied to it or shoot off from it. That's great, Fields. Um, I was wondering, I, in the essay, there's a, I think it's page 16, uh, the map that you put together, I was kind of blown away by like the research of it and getting a better understanding of barometer and how it developed and how it evolved and how it was used against people of color and um, surprisingly not shocked, but also shocked. You just like, I think it was page 14. Yeah, that table. Mm. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. Um, yeah. You're talking about the... Um table that is in the report by Benjamin Gould, a report being investigations in the military and anthropological statistics of American soldiers, where basically is trying to show that like white sailors and um, white soldiers um, have this unusual vigor. That's an actual category, right? Um, these these uh, individuals, like and I guess, like, it's it's important, I guess, for people who are listening to, like, hear how the, the table is breaking down. So there's, like, one category that's white sailors, um, white soldiers, sailors, students, full blacks, mulattoes, and Indians. That's all Gould's language. That's not my language, um, to make that very clear. Um, and then next to that, you know, that list of, of um, subjects, let's just call them that, because that's how Gould was looking at them is a um, category called unusual vigor. Um, and then it has like a bunch of numbers that are listed for each of those, you know, subjects. The white, the white soldiers has 4,837. But like, again, I'm like, I'm, it's important to pay attention to like how these tables are laid out because, um, you know, like not everybody's going to understand how to read them. And I think that's also something important to point out as well is that like, Statistics becoming a, a science in 1869. What you have is piece a new tool actually of surveillance through the use of numbers, right? Um, because only certain people can read these 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 uh, tables. So how it's abstracted, right, um, gives it credibility and, and validates it as a knowledge producing system. Because that's also part of where my thoughts are going to is like if you know science is the the great all-knowing system how does you know science with a capital s determine truth across time and why did we still hold it up as such for such a long time right if we didn't perhaps this is one way of thinking about why i'm so interested in getting an answer for these things or like at least looking closer at these things is like if you look at it as a system of truth 
if it hadn't created those biases, how would we have this understanding in relationship to science today, you know? And I just think about that the time with the ideologies that are, I think, being revisited and created by conservatives who decide that they don't want to believe in science and decide that they um, believe the earth is flat or whatever, uh, or think we don't need science. How does that happen? Also, like, how does it happen that, you know, for a long time, those same conservatives probably, you know, also believe in the biases that it can, that science can construct, um, but they can choose not to believe in it um, <laughs> when, when, when it's telling them other things. Um, but just to get back to the table, um, next to unusual vigor, there is not unusual vigor, and, and then there's a list of the cubic, cubic images, and then there's also another category of total um, and I use this this table in the essay as just like, you know, kind of pointing to some of the references that I'm speaking about and, and citing in, in the essay, just to get a visual representation of like how these categories are constructing difference and determining values in such an abstract way. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was interested in... Um your appropriation of the mix piece and how it was dealing with um, the use of sound as a tool and as kind of like an examination and how like your um, your essay was talking a little bit about or like with, with Hutchinson um, like the breath and and measuring the respiratory systems um, I was just like curious, like when you were starting to write that, like was was the pandemic happening, or were you like writing that last fall, kind of before like COVID was coming upon us? Yeah, I started reading breathing race into the machine early this year. Coronavirus wasn't on the minds of like Americans yet. I was thinking about the breath and going back to utilizing physics and science to make a work that could document the breath. So I was looking into um, these mirrors that can that are used in um, the world of fluid dynamic. They're called a trillion a trillion mirror, where um, you can see the vapors of, of alcohol, or you can see the hot air that's blowing onto a candle uh, from a um, blow dryer. So it's, there are mirrors that when they're set up correctly, you can actually see these kind of like invisible mechanisms and forces and heats and gases. Um, and then trying to, to work with my own breath. And, but I, but I hadn't got, I didn't get far with that, that idea. I was just like, yeah, I think I need to use these, these elements, right? This mirror, my breath. And, and this was all coming out of reading um, breathing race into the machine by Braun, but I didn't start writing the essay until we were like kind of in the thick of COVID nineteen, and I wasn't even too sure if I wanted to write about COVID nineteen. There was already so much writing out there, and I was like, "What, you know, what do I have to say?" But it just felt too it was too relevant to not speak about it, and not to mention like that as I'm thinking about. This, these histories that are tied to to 
the construction constructions of difference and biases and racism racism that's that's happening in in the the world of of science in the world of health insurance in the world of of invention and discovery and the production of scientific objects um the moment that i'm actually living in is is you see the same thing right you see the same thing you see you see that neighborhoods and communities of where black people are living in this country are um have a higher death rate and it's not and it's not because of pre-existing conditions it's actually because there's there's a, a very you know uh, weak infrastructure for the health systems that are that are you know uh occupying those, those neighborhoods you know like you know that are inside of those neighborhoods actually you know like it's and it's not it's not separate from from the history of this barometer and it's not separate from the the origins of of thermodynamics and entropy and in the study of fatigue i don't and they're not and i can't go into detail myself but i think um as a collective measure i can um and what i mean by that i think is like speaking with other authors and speaking with other pieces of research that have already been done and then also looking closely at how COVID-19 is unraveling the not only not just the entire world but more specifically the same communities that have been affected by the biases and racism that has existed for a long time in the field and world of science um so yeah to answer your question I started writing the essay like during COVID-19 but before the uprisings and um and protesting um after the death of um, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Aubrey. Um, so, yeah. Um, did you, um, were you do, you, do you want to talk about the, the protests or? I have participated in, in um, a few protests. Um, you know, and I, and I've tried to participate, um, in other forms of, you know, protesting that don't involve, like, be showing up physically to protest as well. You know, every day I, I, I see something different or new about, you know, this, these protests or this uprising. Um, and again, it goes back to, like, just being on social media and trying to stay in tune with what's happening um and yeah I, I i went to i went to some in manhattan and i went to some in brooklyn and now today it's like you know i can just be out going to um the grocery store and a protest is like happening in my neighborhood and and i think it's necessary that like that they continue to happen um you know um i think i think the movement is is producing some change, not all the change that I think is necessary to take place. Um, I think it, I hope that it goes on for a long time. There is always the question with, you know, the city opening up, um, whether or not that they will sustain themselves um, or sustain that energy, you know, um, you know, because of people going back to work and 
there's always some level of burnout with these things because not everybody at the same time can go full force like forever um which goes back to like that whole you know economy of energy you know the, the energy of the protest the energy of the uprising you know you know that, that has to be considered as well because you know we, we still have to take care of ourselves and we still have to like you know take a break from these things so that we can continue to affect some form of change or some but yeah um i haven't like been to a protest this week and intentionally i think like i did ride up ride my bike with a bunch of cyclists as i was like already outside and i saw a ride that was like you know in the name of george floyd ground taylor on the robbery so I, i rode with them for a while and then i had to go back home but it but i yeah yeah that's 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 been my level of participation because um, that's that's what I have the capacity to do right now. Um, I, I don't have the energy or time to to be in the streets every day, but I'm glad that people are you know doing that and keeping that energy up. Yeah, we're glad too. I it's it's very heavy, obviously, so it's hard to talk about, but. Um, can only you know try to I don't even want to say hope for the best I just want to say like continue fighting really um because it's yeah it's an ongoing fight yeah definitely ongoing is is the right way to see it and understand that for sure do you have any ideas of the the format of your work curious like if yeah you have ideas of like future work like what that would look like if they'd be like videos yeah. or performances or like a sculpture or like a print or yeah i mean i think with the um you know the continuation of uh my ideas around this essay and the press um i still want to go back to to um doing a probably a video you know, performance for the camera uh, or video documentation of, of using my breath. I'm not too sure, like, how I use my breath, but um, that is something that when, I mean, I don't think I need a, a studio. I could probably do it in my bedroom somehow. I just have to set up my camera and, you know, buy this, uh, this mirror, <laughs> which is a very specific kind of mirror that you have to use. And, Using that specific mirror, the Sherlin mirror, um, and using my breath and 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 kind of trying to document my breath uh, through the use of this mirror, so you see what you would normally not see, um, whatever vapors or heat that would come out of my mouth. Um, but I, I haven't figured out like if I'm speaking or not speaking, breathing or not breathing. And then I think just mostly just continuing to write this essay and unpack it more uh, because it just feels like I've been uh, introduced to some new uh, paths in the research that is also tied to like how numbers become these figures of authority and how statistics also become systems of surveillance and also systems of, of knowledges that determine, 
you know, these differences or prove these differences as truth. And so I think I kind of want to dive in that, like maybe writing more and then seeing how the work will come out on the other side of that. Well, thank you so much, Fields. We really appreciate it. And yeah. Yeah, it's um, this is really amazing. Really informative. And um, uh, yeah, we can't wait to see your new work. <laughs> but of course, you know, it takes, all this takes time and one day at a yeah. time. <laughs> I'm telling myself yeah. one day at a time. <laughs> yeah, I'm super slow already at making work, so... Well, yeah, thanks for uh, having me um, and having this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, Thank course. you. We really appreciate it. Of course, of course. Okay. All right.